such a simple song, such a simple melody, a simple, simple words that even a child can understand. And yet if we were to spend a thousand lifetimes plumbing the depth of the truth in that song, we would never, we would never fully be able to understand those attributes of God and, and why he has chosen to share those with us. We're going to be in Galatians 5 briefly, where we launch from every week right now in this series, and then we will eventually end up in 2 Samuel chapter 9, but it'll take a few minutes before we are going to get there. So Galatians 5, then 2 Samuel 9, and then all over the Old Testament and the New uh, as things have gone for, uh, for this semester. Uh, here in my hand, I have a book. I don't know how many of y'all have read this book or what your personal opinion is about this book, but it's called Wild at Heart by John uh, Eldridge. And about 20 years ago, it was all the rage. It was quite, uh, quite the thing that made a, a pretty big stir within a lot of Christian circles. It was one of the first books that I ever uh, chose to read on my own versus something I had been given in an assignment in a, in a class. Um, and, and at the time, I, I didn't have all the categories for how to sort through some things and, uh, and, and how to really kind of parse out a few things. And so as I read it, I was just kind of reflecting on, did this connect with me? Did this not uh, connect with me? And I know some of y'all out there really love this book. Some of y'all out there really hate this book. And a lot of y'all out there have never read this book at all, and you just don't know. Um, but for my take, I would say it had some good points, uh, and it had some uh, maybe maybe odd ways in how to get there, maybe not the most biblical ways in how to get to some of its uh, prescriptions. Um, I wasn't real wild about how he got to his conclusions or all of his conclusions, but that's another sermon. And I promise you this is not a sermon about manhood and masculinity, but I do want to make a point here. What I do remember when I read this book is that in the opening chapter, it's on page seven here, there is a paragraph that deeply resonated with me whenever I read it. And I thought, Wow, that is absolutely uh, true. As a, as a, a 20-year-old at the time uh, that had grown up in the, the youth group culture of the 90s, I had never heard such a quick and kind of cutting indictment of the church as though what the church was doing was maybe not exactly what it should be doing. And here's, uh, here's what he, he said. Here's the, the quote from it. It says, Christianity as it currently exists has done damage to masculinity. When all is said and done, I think most men in the church believe that God put them on the earth to be a good boy. The problem with men, we are told, is that they don't know how to keep their promises, be spiritual leaders, talk to their wives, or raise their children. But if they will try real hard, they can reach the lofty summit of becoming a nice guy. That's what we hold up as models of Christian maturity, really nice guys. I cannot tell you how much that paragraph resonated with me at the time. I thought back on my church experiences, and I think that, uh, and, and at the time I thought, yeah, that's absolutely right. That is exactly what has been put in front of me as a, as a, a high schooler coming up. The, the, the goal was that I become a nice Christian guy. And it had just never occurred to me that perhaps that was a bad thing. Um, and then what he would do is he would go on to, to, to talk about how men longed for uh, adventure. And it began to connect with me a little bit even uh, more until then eventually it didn't. And he kind of lost me in some spots. But the thesis for his book, this right here, that, that Christians were just 
uh, especially Christian men, were, were given no other vision for their life other than to be a nice guy. That resonated. And for a long time, I maintained that whatever you take from this book, good or bad, that idea, that central thesis was correct. And now where you go from there, we could debate, but that thesis was correct. We needed to give a vision for men to be something bigger and better than a nice guy. That was me as a 21-year-old. However, in the last three to four years, after watching this country tear itself apart and a good deal of Christians embarrass themselves in social, on social media, in their churches, and in other places, um, I'm not so sure that the 21-year-old me was correct. In fact, if you gave me a choice of 10 men to start a church, I will take the nice guy over the manly guy every time. I think there is a crisis within Christianity where we don't know how to be nice anymore. And instead, we replace that with a lot of other things that we think are what the Bible is calling us to. And somehow along the line, we've forgotten to be nice. If not altogether, the things that we think that, that we are called to be is not altogether antithetical to being nice. That if you are just a nice guy, then you have somehow missed the vision for the Christian life. I'll take the nice guys over the manly men, whatever that means. It just doesn't do us any good to be able to hit a fastball or to be able to shoot a gun or to be able to smoke cigars if we're just a bunch of jerks. It just doesn't do us any good. I will give one caveat to this critique, though. I will give one caveat to this. Eldridge may be right. We don't need more nice guys. What we need is more kind men. And we need more kind women, too. The church is desperately missing men and women that are kind. Perhaps this has always been true. Perhaps this isn't just a, a uh, kind of outflow of, of this, this theme of teaching that went through the early 2000s. Perhaps this has always been true. And I suppose if you were to ask uh, certain groups of people that have been maligned by the church over the years, they would say that the church has never been kind. In fact, it's been rather hypocritical and, and, and pretty much a bunch of jerks to a lot of people. So I'm not sure if the church has ever fully been known to be kind, but it is apparent in today's world that every indication is that the church is about to make a fool of itself over the next eight weeks. And it is about to do so over false idols and elections. And this morning, I want to make sure that when we, what, when we talk about what it means to be a Christian, we don't, we don't just talk about what it means to be nice. We talk about what it means to be kind. And those are not the same thing. Because the reality is anybody can be nice. Christian or non-Christian, anyone can be nice. But to be a people that are marked by kindness, that is a wholly different thing that you cannot see, at least biblically speaking, you cannot see in the rest of the world. And my prayer is that uh, whatever happens with the church at large over the course of the next eight to nine weeks, that we would be able to say, we are a kind people. 
That is my prayer this morning. We're in Galatians 5, studying the fruit of the Spirit. Just for repetition and clarity, I'm going to read those verses again. Let's read them. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. And so today we look at kindness. A virtue that seems to completely elude the entire uh, country uh, and the church as well in our current cultural moment. It seems as though somewhere along the line, the more brash, the more in your face, the more harsh you are, the more pats on the back you will get. And that is true, not just in the culture at large, but within the church specifically. The more you want to get in someone's face, the more you want to push back, the more you want to, you want to, to, to drive home how wrong someone is, especially how wrong they are with a bit of snark, with a bit of, of sarcasm, the more you want to drive that home, the more you are held as a culture warrior and a truth defender. Not only is the absence of kindness overlooked within the church, it is a, the absence of kindness is a sin that is celebrated both inside and outside the church. And I believe that is absolutely the way the Bible sees it. To not display kindness when we have been called to is not just something that we overlook or we conveniently forget. It is a sin. And we need to deal with it as such. But before we get too far, we need to kind of define terms a little bit because I'm throwing around this idea of niceness and I'm throwing around this idea of kindness and I'm saying the two are not the same, but for the, for the most part, I wonder how, how you would define that. Is, do, do you feel like there's a difference between niceness and kindness? I want you just to think about that for just a minute and we'll define this a little bit and I'll begin to parse those two out, but you think through it just as we're going through here for the next few minutes. Is there a difference between being nice and being kind. Like most of these that we have studied in the fruit of the Spirit, like most of these that we have uh, looked at, these are words that, that perhaps you know the definition as much because you just kind of know what it looks like, more so than because you can put words and say, this is what it means. Especially with a lot of these, and kindness being a very clear one, you know it more by its absence than necessarily by its presence. And I think it's important that we get this right. And I don't, I don't want to get overly technical in our definition because the way Paul lists these out, I think Paul is assuming you know what kindness is. But I do think that there's a couple of authors that have given us some, some definitions here that will serve us well this morning. And so uh, here's the two definitions that I want to give us. The first one is by uh, Alexander Strzok. He says, kindness is a readiness to do good, to help to relieve burdens, to be useful, to serve, to be tender, and to be sympathetic to others. And then Jerry Bridges says, kindness is a sincere desire for the happiness of others. Kindness is the inner disposition created by the Holy Spirit that causes us to be sensitive to the needs of others, whether physical, emotional, or spiritual. Just leave those definitions up there. And you guys can kind of chew on those a little bit and sort through those. And I'll come back to these a time or two this morning. What I like about these definitions is how they, uh, where they, they put their stress, where they put their, their emphasis. And what they, what they say is that kindness is fundamentally about how you treat others. 
Kindness is not fundamentally about you. It is fundamentally about others. I don't know if you see that in there, but it talks about a readiness to do good, the happiness of others, and being sensitive to others' needs. Kindness is, by its definition, by its essence, other-focused. Other-focused. And built into each of these definitions is two different aspects. A disposition and an action. So those two things are necessary to have kindness. A disposition and an an action. So it it has to be a, a mindset that you are pursuing and that you are operating within, followed by or married to an action that is then carried out. That is what kindness is. This is why we only talk about people or or maybe animals, but, but primarily people as being kind. Because they have the ability to carry something out. We talk about all kinds of different things being nice. We don't say that that's a kind car. We say it's a nice car. We don't say that's a kind house. We say it's a nice house. Isaiah was quick to point out to me this week, we don't, we don't dress kind, we dress nice. And then he goes on to complain about how he has to dress nice for church. And what he has to wear is a golf shirt and blue jeans. I'm like, kid, let me tell you about clip-on ties and corduroys. Because that is far worse than what you have to, what you have to wear. You do not have to dress nice whenever you, show up, uh, whenever you show up at church. But he was complaining about dressing nice. But you don't dress kind, you dress nice. Because nice doesn't have either of those concepts of, of an other's disposition or of the action that is accompanied to it. Instead, niceness works in a little bit of a different way. There's no action needed for something to be nice because nice is primarily about appearance, about the way things look. And this is the heart of the difference in these two terms. And I don't want to split hairs and play semantics, but I think this is important for us because I do think that we have tried to be nice for way too long in lieu of being kind. Because to be nice, all you have to do is look like you're kind. All you have to do is to be able to, 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 be able to put on the outward appearance of kindness. You dress up nice, but you don't have to actually be kind. Niceness is more about projecting an image and a persona. The focus of niceness is almost always on me, not the other person. I am nice because I want you to perceive me as such. I am nice because I am a people pleaser and I want you to be pleased whenever you are around me. I am nice because I want you to see me in a certain way. I am nice because I want to be known as being nice. I want that to be part of who I am. It's about showing my ability to be civil, to be agreeable, to be friendly. And it's about making sure that I get something back in return, primarily your respect or that you you like me in general. Now, don't get me wrong. Niceness is not a bad thing. It's good to be nice. But we just need to make sure that we realize it is primarily a self-focused thing. The main function of it is to reward the person that is being nice. 
Additionally, niceness is typically only reserved for certain situations, specifically situations where you are all on the same page, right? Or uh, another way to say it would be, it's, it's typically reserved for people that you are somehow within the same tribe or that you don't want to get to know. So you are nice because you just don't want to, you don't want to pursue the relationship. So you just, you just be nice so that you don't have to deal with anything else. Or you're nice because you see the person that you are talking to as an ally within your tribe. But as soon as you begin to be nice across tribes, well then that's when things start to get a little bit more difficult. Because in this cultural moment, not only will you, will you be criticized for being nice to someone outside of your tribe, you might actually be canceled for it. You might actually be told you can't be nice to that person. And if you don't believe me, this afternoon, you can go on Twitter and you can just look up the comments that are being made in the wake of the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. If a conservative would dare say something nice about her, that conservative will be absolutely torn apart for showing niceness. And they will be asked questions like, how dare you show this? Don't you know all of these evil things that she has done? How could you be nice? Unless you think this is just a problem for conservatives, you go back four years ago and you go look at all the old tweets whenever Scalia died, you will see the same thing. How dare you show kindness or niceness to someone outside of our tribe? That is not allowed. The only thing that's allowed for people outside of our tribe is vitriol and anger and snark about how wrong they are. We can't show niceness to others. Niceness has its limits. Kindness, however, does not. Kindness supersedes all of those things. It supersedes our bubbles and our tribes. It supersedes our offenses. It supersedes all of those things because kindness is offered in spite of all of those things. Kindness is different. At least biblically defined, kindness is different. Because that kindness is not rooted in our own motives or even our own person, our own flesh. Niceness is. Kindness is rooted in something wholly different. So here's how I'm going to do this for the rest of this morning. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and give you my four points for the morning. And I'm not going to come back to them because they all kind of run into each other. But I'll give them to you up front and then we'll talk about them through all kinds of verses in the Old and the New Testament. Because they all, they all, they all overlap a lot. So note takers, you may have to get creative in figuring out how to use these four points. But I am giving you four points this morning, which is a step in the right direction uh, for you guys that are looking for those things. Uh, so here's the, the four points that we've got. Kindness isn't natural. Kindness isn't easy. Kindness isn't nice, or at least not always nice. And kindness is always gracious. There's the four things we are going to say about kindness. So first, kindness isn't natural. And that's because, biblically speaking, kindness doesn't come from us. It comes from the very nature of God. And that is the heartbeat of this series. Even though we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, the way we're talking about it is how each of these fruits of the Spirit is actually derived from the nature of God, from who He is, from one of His attributes. It is rooted in God Himself. 
And so what we're going to see is how this, this attribute of God, this true God, is in how that, that, that impacts us and what it means for us. Psalm 36, 5 through 10. I'm going to read this. Now, my translation uses, uses this, this term, steadfast love. But as I read this, just translate that in your head as kindness. Just where it says steadfast love, insert kindness. Or you can even insert loving kindness in there. Because that's a, that's a perfectly good translation uh, as well. So Psalm 36, 5 through 10. Your steadfast love, your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. We talked about faithfulness last week. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, your loving kindness, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. Oh, continue in your loving kindness to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. So this idea of loving kindness, there's a Hebrew word here, it's called hesed. That's, that's the word, and it, it is a word that's notoriously hard to translate because it can mean so many, it's built into it as this idea of faithfulness, this idea of love, this idea of, 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 of kindness, and this idea of all of those things continuing in spite of everything else. If you had a youth pastor who had a Hebrew tattoo, that was probably it. It's a pretty popular one. It's, it's, a, it's a popular word because it means so much. It's got so much tied to it. And we can use that to see the psalmist is talking about the kindness of God. Your steadfast love, your kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. How precious is your kindness, O God. Continue your kindness to those who love and to know you. It's a beautiful picture describing and pleading for the kindness of, of God. This idea of God's steadfast, loving kindness is all over the Old Testament. I could stand here for the next 30 minutes and read you psalms and read you different things talking about uh, this idea. If you want to do a great Bible study this week, if your discipleship group is looking for something to kind of kind of jump in there, that would be a great one. Go throughout the Old Testament. Do a, 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 a word study in the Old Testament of that word, hesed, and you will be tremendously blessed as you look at that and God's faithfulness to his covenant and to us. Psalm 117 says it this way. This is the entire psalm, two verses. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Great is his kindness toward us. Psalm 86:15 But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in kindness, loving kindness and faithfulness. I could keep going on and on and on, but for the sake of time, I'll I'll keep going here and I'll move on. It is God's loving kindness that the psalmist and the prophets constantly appeal to for his mercy. We'll talk about his mercy and his justice a little bit later on in this series, but, but in order to even appeal and ask for mercy and justice, first the psalmist goes and says, be kind to us because you are kind, God. 
We trust that you will be kind because we know that's who you are. When God is described in his relationship with Israel, it is is his unfailing kindness that defines that relationship with his people. And the, the same is true of us today. His kindness is what first marks our relationship. So this is part of why I can say that kindness isn't natural. It's because when we talk about kindness, we're talking about something that comes from outside of us. It comes from the very nature of God. It is, by by definition then, a supernatural thing for us to display this fruit of the Spirit. to, To display any fruit of the Spirit. Anybody can be nice. Biblically speaking, only Christians can be kind. Now, obviously, we can talk about kind people that we have known and, and others that, that, that we would say are, 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 are thoughtful and those type of things. But to follow through with all that God is in His kindness, it is a supernatural thing that the Holy Spirit, as Bridges' definition uh, alluded to, that the Holy Spirit empowers us to do. Another reason that it's not natural to be kind is because it's not easy. Now, I know I'm, I'm mixing points one and two, but I told you that's how it was going to go. It's not natural because it's not easy. It's natural for us to be nice because that niceness is born out of self-focused, self-benefiting things. We, we receive the benefit from being nice. Kindness, on the other hand, is different. So what I want you to do now is I want you to look in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And we're going to look at a story that we've looked at a time or two in here before. But I think it's a beautiful story and I love to go back to it. And it's all about kindness. It's about King David and his love for his friend Jonathan. Now Jonathan was the son of King Saul. And so there's obviously a little bit of a conflict of interest there. But, but that was his, his good friend, his best friend, his closest ally was Jonathan. But whenever the regimes changed from Saul to David, things got, things got bad. The reality is that you know, we're used to seeing uh, uh, someone in power whenever they, they change hands, that there's uh, you know, all kinds of things that are going. There's inaugural parades, and there's you know, shaking hands on the way out, photo ops, and that kind of stuff. That's not the way regime changes happened uh, in the Old Testament. When one king would come into power, the only way that king was going to come into power was if he took it by force. And he said, this is now my, my kingship. I am taking over this throne. And the only way that was going to happen, is the other king was not going to go out silently. And part of the reason the other king was not going to go out silently is one, because the other king was going to be killed. And two, because not only was the other king going to be killed, all of his descendants were going to be killed. So that his descendants couldn't rise up and say, no, 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 rightfully this is my throne because it should have passed down to me whenever my father died. David, you don't have claim to this throne. And so this is what ended up happening. There was no shaking of hands, but Saul and Jonathan were killed. And then what would typically happen is that they would quite literally clean house. And they would get rid of everyone in that household. And now that did happen here, but it didn't totally happen. 
And David made a promise to Jonathan before Jonathan was killed. And what he said was, I am not going to kill your descendants. I'm not going to cut them off from the land altogether. It was a kindness shown to Jonathan that is not typically offered by an incoming king. But David wanted to do more. So he, he had promised he would not kill the descendants, but then after Jonathan was dead, David is reflecting back and he wants to do even a little bit more. And he says, how can I bless Jonathan? Even though he's gone, what else can I do for his household? And that's where we get to 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. I'm going to read 1 through 7. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Same word, hesed. That I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. So David's asking the question, is there anybody else left that I can bless in this way, that I can show them kindness? He's actively seeking someone that he can show kindness to. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and, he called, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Maker and the son of Amiel at Lodibar. And then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel to Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, this is the name of the the, the, the descendant that was left that was crippled. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore you all the land, all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. You guys can keep on reading if you want. I'll stop there. But it's a beautiful story of a king who owes nothing to anyone, who's already shown a kindness to Jonathan. He owes no more kindness to Jonathan. Jonathan's not even alive to experience the kindness. But he says, how can I bless them? And they say, here's this, this guy, Mephibosheth. And the story of Mephibosheth is somewhere during this regime change, he was being carried out. The, the nurse who was with him or the, the person who was looking after him tripped and fell, crippled his, his feet, and he could not walk. So he was, he was crippled. He could not provide for himself in any way. I, I don't know where he was left out, but he was, he was definitely pushed out of the city, pushed out of anywhere where he could be of any use or anyone would remember him. And David actively seeks him out. Nobody would have ever said anything about Mephibosheth if David had not sought him out. There's a couple things I want you to notice about this story. David is under no obligation. He doesn't have to do this. Once regimes change, all bets are off. He's not, he's not owed anything to him. So not only does he not owe Jonathan or Mephibosheth anything, Jonathan's dead. So he doesn't just not owe them anything. He's not obligated to them at all. There is literally no way for Jonathan to pay him back. It, it's impossible. He's dead. 
So David isn't doing this saying, how can I be repaid here? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not offering this because I want this. I'm not being, being nice because if I'm nice, then I get this in return. That's not, that's not what's happening here. There's no obligation. There's no chance of being paid back. And that is a beautiful picture of biblical kindness. Think about it from the definitions that we had, uh, 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 that we had before. You can put those definitions back up there. If you can put those definitions back up there. Think about what this says here. David is actively seeking to help others. He's actively seeking to help others. This help is born of a disposition that then results in an action. So that was already a part of who he is. That was already happening. So David had this this idea. He wakes up seeking to figure out how can I show kindness? This act is not done to to receive anything. It is only done in order to give something with no hope of repayment. This act is not fundamentally in any way about David. It's shown to someone outside of his own tribe, even someone that could have been considered an enemy combatant. Even though he was crippled, he was of a, a, a household that would have been an enemy to David's household. All of these reasons why David had, sh- should not be nice to him. Yet David wakes up and he says, how can I show kindness? God's loving kindness to someone on behalf of of my friend, Jonathan. That is not natural at all. For David to do something like this, it took something outside of himself to press him in this direction. Now, in the immediate context, what we see is he's motivated by this friendship with Jonathan. But we know that there's more to this. He's simply doing what he's already prayed for and asked that God would grant him. In Psalm 25, David is the psalmist, and here's what he says in Psalm 25, verse 4. He says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your path. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, your loving kindness, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. According to your kindness, remember me for the sake of your goodness. So, 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 so God, on the basis of your kindness, show me grace. Verse 8, good and upright is the Lord, and therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord... Our steadfast love, our kindness and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. So David knows the the ways of the Lord are kindness. And so he is motivated by the person of God to show kindness now to the descendants of Jonathan. He is seeking to display what he has seen, what he has heard, and what he has experienced from God. So kindness isn't natural, it isn't easy. It cost David something to bring Mephibosheth close. And in fact, if you keep reading the story, you'll see that it cost him a lot. But it cost him something to to bring Mephibosheth close. But it didn't matter to David. 
He was willing to endure the cost and the risk in order to show the kindness. He wasn't just being nice. You see, we all know that whenever it starts to cost you something, niceness ends. And that's the next point. Being kind isn't always about being nice. Now, we've talked about the difference between kindness and niceness, but I'm talking about something even more here. Because not only is being kind not about, not about being nice, in fact, you sometimes can't be nice and be kind at the same time. If I were to go out after this service and I were to stand out in the parking lot and I were to get into a conversation with some of you guys and I were to be talking and, and we'd be talking about different stuff and we'd be going over some different things and you'd be telling me about how great that sermon was and how God just really blessed you and how wonderful all of it was and we would be carrying on and going on and on and I would be saying, tell me more, tell me more. And as we're having this conversation, I noticed out of the corner of my eye that, that, that one of your two-year-old children was playing close to the the sidewalk, right? And had had walked over to the sidewalk. And then at the same time, I were to catch over out of the corner of my eye, uh, a car that was flying, had ran a red light and was flying up 11E out there. Um, I'm the only one that sees this because it's out of the corner of my eye. You don't see this as we're having this conversation. I have a choice to make in that moment. I can be nice and I can be like, oh, he probably shouldn't be, be playing there, but it's your kid. I'll let you grab him, even though you don't have time to grab him. But it's the nice thing to do. Or I can do the kind thing, which is as quickly as I can go over there, snatch that kid up, maybe end up busting his lip or something whenever I grab him. But I snatch him up and I yank him away from danger before he steps out into the street. That's not nice. In fact, if I were to do that in some other context, I might get arrested for it, right? I can't just go around grabbing kids and and, and, and just, you know, whenever I feel like, oh, come on, kid. I can't do that. But if I'm going to show kindness in that moment, it's the only option that I have. Do you see the difference in those two things? In order for me to show kindness, I have to forego the niceness and the politeness and the civility. I have to act with abandon. To save that child. And that is the kindest thing that I could do in that moment. The circumstance demands that I do something more. I love how the psalmist says it here as clear as can be. Psalm 141 verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. And yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. Kindness may look very nice sometimes. And other times it may look like a blow to the head. Friends, as your pastor, I fail, I fail you deeply if I am just a nice guy for you. If you just look at me and you think, I like our pastor, he's a nice guy. Don't get me wrong, I want you to think I'm a nice guy. I I want you to think that. Therein lies the danger and the temptation in my soul. Because if you just see me as a nice guy, and not one that is faithful and kind, then I have not done my job. I much more would want you to consider me to be a kind person, willing to offend where needed and to speak where necessary. 
If I cower from helping a friend, if you cower from helping a friend because it may cause pain or friction in a relationship, then you are not doing that friend a kindness. You may be nice, but you're not kind. Ephesians tells us that we should do this in love. We should speak the truth in love. But speak we must. Listen to this in Proverbs verse 20, or chapter 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. You could easily rewrite that proverb to say, kind are the wounds of a friend. Nice, the words of an enemy. Flattery and niceness are done for yourself. Kindness is done out of a love for the other person. It requires truth, honesty, and love. All of those things are built into the the idea of kindness. If you don't have those things, you don't have kindness. Which brings me to my final point. Kindness is always gracious. Kindness is always gracious. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Paul warns us that the lack of God's wrath upon each of us as we sin is not because we have gotten away with our sin. It is not because God has forgotten about our sin. And it is not because God has not taken our sin seriously. It is simply because God is kind. And we would do well not to presume upon that kindness. We must turn and repent. And we must walk with others in kindness and help them to do the same. Old theologians would call this idea, because sometimes this kindness just looks like God just delaying a little bit and working in your heart. And other times this kindness will look very, very harsh. And old theologians would call this idea of God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance a severe mercy. God may, be very, may not be very nice to us in those moments, at least not how we would define it. But oftentimes when God tries to get our attention, it is through means and through things that are far from nice. But those things that he uses, he is kind to use them. Friends, this morning my prayer is that you might experience the kindness of God maybe for the first time this morning. That you would not presume upon that kindness and say, I've got all the time in the world. I've got plenty of time. My sins aren't that bad. Maybe he didn't, maybe he didn't notice that one. Maybe that one's really not that bad. This person said it wasn't that bad. My, my plea to you is to not presume upon that kindness, but instead to experience that kindness and to know it deeply this morning morning. I can't say it any better than how Paul says it in Titus chapter 3. He's talking about Jesus when Jesus came on the scene and he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Why? Because He has been kind to us. It's just like Mephibosheth. Cast out a totally different tribe, forgotten, let go, once an enemy combatant, or at least part of a tribe of enemy combatants against the house of David. And David says, how can I show kindness? Let me bring him in. Let me sit him at the table. Let me feed him well. He will be as my son. And so it is for us, enemy combatants of God, rebels against him. And God says, I will show my loving kindness. And how will I do that? I will send Jesus. And Jesus will die on a cross. And then through that death, I will then send the Holy Spirit. And I will bless them with it. And they will become heirs. And they will be seated at the table with the king. That is the kindness of God. And you are invited to sit at that table. What a blessing that is. You too can become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There is nothing that makes sense about that sentence outside of the kindness of God. My final challenge to you this morning would be to live like David in this sense. To leave this place asking the question, who can I show a kindness to today? To wake up tomorrow morning with that question working over in your head as you fix breakfast, as you drive to work, as you read your Bible, as you have a conversation with the, uh, the cashier at Weigel's, as you walk into work that morning, as you speak with someone, who can I show a kindness to? And I want to be clear here, random acts of kindness are good. That's fine. If y'all want to pay for somebody's meal like behind you at, at, at McDonald's, go for it. That's fine. But I think much more, a much better picture would be intentional, long-term, faithful kindness that costs you something, that costs you time, that costs you effort, that costs you tears. It cost me 20 bucks to pay for somebody else's meal at McDonald's. And that's fine. It's good. It'll bring a smile to someone's face. You should do that. But much more important is the kind of kindness that will cost you deeply. That will make you weep. And that perhaps God would use to draw someone else to the table. So who will you show kindness to today? That you seek nothing in return. That in fact you know you will receive nothing in return. You simply do it because you have been shown kindness. Who will you show kindness to this week? There's a table full of cards out there. There's stamps. There's envelopes. There's ink pens. There's everything you need just to offer a word of encouragement and kindness. We have cell phones that make it so easy it's embarrassing to show kindness. And yet we use them for Twitter to tear people down. Over the next eight weeks, as we approach this election, 
how will you show kindness? And who will you show kindness to? What will you do when it costs you something to show kindness from someone that's not of your tribe, that doesn't agree with you? Friends, my prayer is that this church, that you would be known for your kindness. Not because I want you to be a nice guy, but because I want you to be empowered supernaturally by the Holy Spirit and to make his name great because you were kind. Will you pray with me? Father, it is a kindness that we can gather here. It is a kindness that we can sing these songs. It is a kindness that we can say things like, you have saved us and invited us to eat at the table. And yet so often we are so spoiled and we say, God, thank you for the seat at the table, but can you just make sure that we've got all the food exactly how I want it to fit my taste, to to, to be exactly what I need at this banquet? Father, forgive us where we are spoiled brats. Forgive us where we don't appreciate your kindness, where we don't glorify you for that kindness. Father, forgive us where where we take that kindness and we presume upon it. And we assume that maybe you have forgotten or looked over or somehow not taken our sin seriously. Thank you most of all for a kindness that leads to repentance. And I pray that kindness would be upon every person in this room. And that we would display that kindness to everyone we meet. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.